Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Before we begin today's topic, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. Cancer, the world's number two killer, is even more lethal for people with diabetes, U.S. researchers said on Tuesday. People with diabetes who get cancer are about 40% more likely to die in the years following the diagnosis than cancer patients who are not diabetics, according to the research published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The research depicts an alarming interaction between two common medical conditions. Cancer is forecast to replace heart disease as the world's leading killer in the year 2010. Meanwhile, type 2 diabetes, the form closely linked to obesity, is becoming increasingly common in many countries. In the past decade, the rate of new cases of diabetes has soared by about 90% in the United States. The findings suggest that for diabetics who are diagnosed with cancer, it may be vitally important to do whatever is necessary to get their diabetes under control for the sake of improving cancer survival. The findings are the combined result of 23 studies involving 125,000 people in 10 countries, including the United States, Australia, and the Netherlands. The studies tracked death from all causes in people with cancer who had diabetes and those who did not. The research showed a 76% higher risk of death for women with cancer of the uterus and a 61% higher risk of death for breast cancer if they also had diabetes. For colorectal cancer, there was a 32% higher risk of death for diabetics. There were also increases in mortality risk for diabetics with some other types of cancer, including prostate and lung cancer, but this did not reach the level of statistical significance, the researchers said. Diabetics are also at higher risk of heart disease, stroke, kidney damage, and blindness. The design of the study did not allow the researchers to determine exactly how diabetes makes cancer more lethal, but they cited a number of possibilities. Diabetes may predispose a person to cancer complications, or patients and doctors may pay less attention to diabetes once cancer is diagnosed. In addition, some cancer therapies, especially steroid medications used in many cancer treatments, can cause blood sugar levels to go even higher. In other news, cigarette smoking has been associated with the occurrence of colorectal cancer and with the mortality from the disease, according to researchers. Scientists identified 106 studies looking at smoking and colorectal cancer that included almost 40,000 cases. Pooling the data showed an 18% higher relative risk of developing colorectal cancer for smokers compared with non-smokers. The relative risk of dying from the disease was 25% higher for smokers, indicating a more aggressive tumor type associated with smoking. 
Researchers believe that smoking represents an important factor to consider when deciding on the age at which colorectal cancer screening should begin and suggest either lowering the age in smokers or increasing the age in non-smokers. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's today's Cancer in the News. I want to start off by wishing everyone a very happy New Year. It's officially 2009, and I'm sure many of us are heading into the new year with resolutions, maybe to get more exercise or be less stressed at work or keep in touch with a friend. You know, the list goes on and on. Uh, but chances are, with the 12 million cancer survivors living in the U.S. today, you probably know someone who's been touched by cancer and whose New Year's resolution may be as simple as appreciating every day. Um, one of the resolutions on our show this year is to inform people on how to live a better life with cancer, but also raise awareness of specific types of cancer. So, folks, January is National Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, and on today's show, we're going to take a closer look at a cancer that's death rates have declined over the years, but is still an incredibly serious illness to those it affects. When it comes to women's cancer, cervical cancer is often overshadowed by breast cancer, by ovarian cancer. Um, while 184,000 women were diagnosed with breast cancer and uh, 21,650 women diagnosed with ovarian cancer last year, the 11,000 or so cases of cervical cancer diagnosed in 2008 might not seem like a big number, but frankly, to those women and their loved ones coping with the disease, the number remains quite significant. So we have three wonderful guests with us here today to participate in this important discussion. First, we have Marilyn Ucardi. Marilyn is a cervical cancer patient and also a participant at our wellness community in central New Jersey. Welcome, Marilyn. Thank you. We also have Patty Kingsley. Patty, too, is a cervical cancer patient and is joining us from Sarasota, where she is uh, a participant at our wellness community of southwest Florida. Thanks for being here, Patty. Thank you. Uh, and then last but not least, we have our friend and colleague, Cheryl redland Frazier. Uh, Cheryl is a registered oncology nurse and a clinical learning consultant at Vanderbilt Medical Center in Nashville. Cheryl is also the co-author of the Wellness Community's educational booklet, Frankly Speaking About Ovarian Cancer. Maybe, Cheryl, we're going to have to do one day, Frankly Speaking About Cervical Cancer. Uh, I really appreciate you joining us today. Oh, thank you, and that would be fabulous. Yes, absolutely. Well, I know that our listeners are eager to hear your stories and eager to hear the discussion, so I'd like to jump right in. Marilyn, let me start with you. Take us back to the day when you were diagnosed with cancer. Um, how, how did you find out that you had cancer? What was that really like for you and your family to receive that kind of news? Well, it's been almost a year now. It was February 25th when I had my hysterectomy of 2008, and I found out probably about five days later that it was cancer, mm. but my diagnosis came kind of roundabout. Um, most people, I'm sure, get a diagnosis through a pap test, mm -hmm. but I didn't have it go that way. I had been um, uh, going to the gynecologist and finding out that I had fluid in my uterus, mm. and that was going on for years, and my gynecologist was very thorough, and she did... Um, routine pap tests on me. I never missed one. We did internal ultrasounds. And about three years ago, I also did a um, DNC. Mm -hmm. And everything was normal. Everything was clear. And she just deducted that maybe that was just me. But um, I guess I started getting tired of you know, having to go through all those extra tests. Yes. It was becoming a nuisance. So I elected to have 
a hysterectomy. It was done laparoscopically because we suspected no problems. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, you want to tell folks what what that means laparoscopically. Um, it's not. It's where they do not make an incision. Mm-hmm. That uh, they uh, make a small incision to put the light in and to see, uh-huh. but it actually comes out through your vagina. Okay. Okay. So, so it's a much um, less invasive procedure. Absolutely. Okay. When I was in the recovery room, my doctor came in and she said everything looked good. She looked at the samples visually. She said you should have no problem. I went home to recover and I thought it was, you know, just wonderful. Well, two days later she called me and she said the local hospital lab where I had this procedure done uh, wasn't sure of what they were seeing, so they sent it to Mass General. And it came back two days after that that it was endo cervical adenocarcinoma, which just means basically that it started on the canal and it was somewhat hidden. Mm. So I was very surprised. My entire family was surprised. Yeah. My GYN was surprised. Yeah. We did not expect this diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah, quite a shock. It was quite a shock. Well, Marilyn, I'm going to come back to you. We're going to talk a little bit more about your story and kind of what you know what things were like from that point on when you found out it was cancer. But Patty, I want to hear from you. I I know now you're going through your third recurrence with cervical cancer. You've been dealing with cancer over, I understand, the course of 20 years now. So tell us a little bit about that history and about your story, Patty. Actually, it's 24 years. 24 years. And yeah, um, when I was 20 years old, I had a pap smear. And uh, the test came back that there was mild dysplasia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't too concerned with it. They said that they could do cryosurgery and it would go away. Cryosurgery is freezing, freezing. of the uh, cervix. Mm-hmm. Um, and two years later on my pap smear, again, I had dysplasia. Uh, and they did another cryosurgery. Two years later after that... Um, uh, I had a cone biopsy yeah. because, again, there was dysplasia. Uh, and to make a long story short, by 1981, uh, seven years later, at age 27, I had to have a hysterectomy because uh, I had developed what they call carcinoma in situ, mm-hmm. which is a tumor that has not spread yet. Uh, and they told me back in 1981 they believed that a hysterectomy would solve uh, all of those problems and I would never have to deal with this again. And for 20 years I didn't. And on a routine pap test, uh, they found uh, growth at the back of my vagina. Mm. And I was pretty horrified at that point. It yeah. was, uh, it's scary. Yeah, uh, I had done everything right, and uh, here it was back again 20 years later. Wow. Um, and the cure for it, uh, the protocol, was to have a vaginectomy where they remove uh, the back portion of your vagina where the tumor is growing. Yeah. And I had that done at Moffitt, which is a National Cancer Institute um, facility. And they... The margins on the uh, surgical removal of the tumor were all clear. Lymph nodes were clear, so there was no need for uh, any further treatment. And once again, I was cured, uh, only to find out last uh, June, June, actually June 07, that uh, 
I had a malignant tumor, uh, cervical cancer that had spread to between my bladder and colon. And at this point, you know, it was very serious. Um, And uh, I had uh, very aggressive treatment with chemotherapy and uh, radiation. Uh, It became very painful. And uh, as a result of those two uh, therapies, the tumor went away. I am in remission, but I have side effects where uh, fistula, which is like a pathway between my colon and uh, bladder, was um, created by the radiation. And as a result of that, I had to have a colostomy. And I still battle with problems with my uh, urinary system. And in June, I had to have the entire urinary system uh, reconstructed in a 10-hour surgery. Wow. Wow, Patty. We're, you know, this is an incredible, these stories are incredible. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today um, about cervical cancer, and uh, we have some amazing stories about uh, what these women have been through in the cervical cancer experience. We're going to take a quick break, and we are going to be right back. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. It attacks the brain, and you might not know what hit you. It's a stroke, and it can cripple or kill you. If suddenly you're numb or weak on one side, limb, or face, it could be a stroke. Get help. There's no time to waste. It could even be a sudden, severe headache without cause. If you wait to get help, time lost is brain lost. Maybe it's a loved one slurring their speech or dizzy. Call 911 and get medical help quickly. There are even more symptoms that I did not mention. So call or hit the web for information and prevention. Blacks have a higher occurrence. Do you want to know more? Call 1-888-4-STROKE or visit www.strokeassociation.org. High blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. All make the risk of a stroke more likely. But remember, if it happens, do not delay. Or disability might be the price you pay. A public service message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. 
Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we're joined by Marilyn Ucardi, a cervical cancer patient and participant at our Wellness Community of Central New Jersey, Patty Kingsley, also a cervical cancer patient and participant at our Wellness Community of Southwest Florida, and Cheryl Redland Frazier, who is an oncology nurse at Vanderbilt Medical Center. Um, we have two very powerful stories uh, of, of cervical cancer patients and what they've been dealing with, some really intense experiences, um, uh, and we're going to hear more from them. But I want to go now to our nurse, Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl, explain to us why cervical cancer was once a, a pretty common cause of cancer death for American women and why the death rate has declined so rapidly over the years. Well, I think we've heard so far that this can be a relatively slow-growing kind of tumor. Um, It is a cancer that resides um, in the cervix, which is an organ that is between the uterus and vagina, and Marilyn and and Patty have done a great job of explaining that. In the um, mid-1940s, Dr. George Papaniculau, um, who is the inventor of the pap smear and his colleagues, put together a paper on how to diagnose uterine cancer by a vaginal smear, and really that was the very beginning of uh, what we call the PAP test today. It is one of the best screening tools of modern healthcare. It is a fabulous tool. Um, It evolved from a smear on a slide to a liquid-based procedure, which is what we do today, and it is what every woman should ask when they get their pap test done. Is is this going to go in a liquid uh, preparation? Because that is um, used in a number of ways that are pretty technological, but um, also tells the doctor, the provider, and the pathologist what might be going on. So women should insist on having the liquid-based preparation. But certainly it doesn't mean if you get a pap smear that you're not going to get cervical cancer. Oh, that's correct. I know Marilyn was telling me she got her pap religiously every year. Absolutely. Well, since 1940, um, because of the pap test, there has been a steady decline in the incidence of cervical cancer, what was once the leading cause of death in women in this country. Now, Kim, you said 11,000 women this year. Um, It still ranks fifth as a killer among women world, cancer killer among women worldwide. But um, even though we have this great test, women still don't get it. Still are still getting it. Now, Cheryl, let me ask you quickly. um, We're hearing now about the cervical cancer vaccine, okay? Mm-hmm. We hear a lot about it in the news. We're seeing commercials for it. it tell me, should, should should girls, should young women be getting this this vaccination? What can you tell us about it? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, it is recommended for um, young girls, actually um, 11 to 12, but all the way up to the age of 26. So girls from 13 to women of 26 um, are eligible to receive the vaccine. It's called Gardasil. That's its commercial name. Mm-hmm. And it contains four of the riskiest HPV um virus vaccine uh, immunization. So mm-hmm. HPV is a virus that is found in virtually all um, cervical cancer pathology. So when they look at it under the microscope, they see these viruses. And so um, having a vaccine that contains those four types um, is very advantageous for women. Now, um, a lot of women ask, well, I'm 27, what about me? Right. And they're actually conducting studies for the older woman, people over 26 years, women over 26. Mm-hmm. And we'll have an answer for that in the next couple of years. And we all suspect that women, older women, will be um, eligible to receive the vaccine. Okay, so we have to keep our eyes out for that now. Absolutely. And so then sure. boys are the other population. Yeah. So do boys and men need to get this vaccine? And there's also lots of research underway to answer that question as well. And I think we'll hear about the boys and the over 26-year-old women um, in the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Well, Cheryl's given given us a good kind of update on, on why we're seeing these declines in death rates, a little bit about the cervical cancer vaccine. I want to turn uh, back to Patty and to Marilyn, and I want to go back to, again, what are some of the things that you have done to cope with your cancer experience? I know you've both participated at the wellness community. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. I'm going to start with you, Marilyn. Um, just take a minute or two to tell us some of the things that you and your family have done to, to cope with this diagnosis. Well, uh, let me add uh, before I uh, go into that that I also had a colostomy done, mm-hmm. and that was due to radiation damage mm-hmm. that um, you know, my treatment consisted of cisplatin and and radiation, and I was one of the less than five percent that had radiation problems. But um, and adding to that, the wellness community has been wonderful. It was wonderful. If it had just been the cancer I was dealing with, that would have been fine. But that I had the the colostomy, that was an additional thing yeah. that I needed support for. Yeah. So I go to the um, I go to the gynecological support meetings, which are once a month at our facility. I do the yoga. I do the uh, relaxation and visualization. Um, I cannot exercise right now because I'm too close to my surgery. Yeah. But I plan on going for more of the exercise program that they offer, but the support has been wonderful, getting to know the other ladies and the talk therapy that we get is wonderful. Yeah. What about about you, Patty? Let me hear from you about what you have been doing to cope with the illness. What do you participate in there at the wellness community, and and how have you and your family really been coping with this? Oh, well, it's it's a difficult thing to cope with, and there aren't a lot of venues where you can go and be among other people. So the wellness community fills a wonderful uh, fills a void with a wonderful program. And what's really truly spectacular about it is that it's free, and that all the participants don't have to pay. And so you see women from all socioeconomic groups, and yet we all have this one thing in common. Um, 
I found out about the wellness community through uh, our newspaper's community calendar about some of their um, exercise classes. And I go to the cancer support group. My husband goes to caregivers group. Uh, we both go to couples in cancer, um, nutritional counseling, yoga, and journaling. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's it's been wonderful. Fantastic. Great support. Um, Cheryl, so yes. it's amazing to me, okay, we're talking about cervical cancer, and it's amazing to me that we're also talking about some very complicated surgeries. We're talking about colostomy. We're talking about recurrence. We're talking about radiation. I mean, boy, oh, boy, it's a pretty complicated, uh, pretty complicated diagnosis or can be certainly. How important would you say it is for folks to find support, to get connected to others, to look for support programs in their community? Well, certainly for the gynecologic malignancies, which, as you mentioned in the beginning, Kim, are of smaller numbers than, for example, breast cancer. There are there aren't any cervical cancer walks for the cure. Right. So I I think that women who have gynecologic malignancies really need to find support um, in organizations like the wellness community where they can talk to other women who may be experiencing not their kind of cancer but the symptoms that are associated with treatment, um, how to get back, how to, how to get over the treatment um, sequela or the things that come out of treatment, how to deal with fistulas. Um, fistulas develop from other kinds of cancers, too. So what are fistulas, Cheryl? Tell a, fist, a fistula is a tract that develops from an internal space to outside the body. Mm-hmm. So um, in Marilyn's case, it was it sounded like from the colon to the vagina, maybe, Marilyn? That was in Patty's case. In Patty's case, sorry. One was bladder to colon. Bladder to colon. And so it just... It, uh, Things need a place to drain, and so they find the, the quickest route outside the body. Um, but radiation changes sexuality. Neither one of you mentioned the um, sort of difficulty in dealing with your sexual identity after you've been diagnosed with this kind of cancer and gone through the treatment. How do you maintain the feeling of being a woman? And, um, and how do you have a relationship with your partner? And I think you find those kinds of answers in support group organizations. Not, it's not the kind of topic you want to talk to no. about anybody, right? But if you no. can find a support group, a good therapist, a good safe place where you can have that conversation, figure out how to bring your partner into that conversation, it's an important part of what uh, these women are dealing with, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Mar- Marilyn and Patty, other things that, that you have done to cope on a, on a day-to-day basis with uh, some of the complications that you're dealing with, talking about how maybe you're managing work, how you're managing your relationships with your friends, with your family. We have a couple minutes left, and I'd love to hear a little bit more from you. Um, what about you, Patty? Um my friends have been wonderfully supportive. It's a different type of support than what you get from the women at the wellness community where I really can um, uh, draw from their courage yeah. uh, to continue, you know, in the face of some very uncomfortable and difficult problems. Yeah. Um, my friends are more helpful in doing things, mm-hmm. uh, but at the wellness community it's more an understanding. Yeah. A real empathy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Marilyn? Well, I am very lucky. I have an extremely loving, supportive family and group of friends. And my three married children all live near me. 
and I'm a grandmother of six. Oh, wow. So it is very <laughs> uh, difficult to be sad or worried when you're visiting with them, and I try to do that a lot. And, you know, they give me a lot of joy, my children, my husband, my friends, and my grandchildren. And it's hard to be sad when you um, are with them or thinking of them. Plus, I'm getting some um, counseling, mm-hmm. which outside of the wellness center, mm-hmm. which I think I needed. And I'm very um, uh, diligent about taking what I learn at the Wellness Center, like the visualization and the relaxation, and I practice it at home. Mm-hmm. And that calms me down if any of my uh, worries tend to get out of control. Yeah. We have yeah. About, a, about a minute until uh, our break, but Marilyn, did you and your family decide to talk to the grandchildren about your cancer? My grandchildren are very young. I have six of them under four. Oh, wow. So they know nothing. They just, you know, at one point they knew uh, Mimi had a boo-boo, you Uh know, and they're way too young. But one of the most difficult things that I had to do was to tell my children. Yes. After I found out, you know. And I think once I got through that and, and that they didn't panic and my stage is, Stage 1B, so, um, you know, everything looks good for me. And when I saw that they were calm with it, I was calm with it. Yeah, terrific. Uh, Folks, we're going to take a quick break. January is National Cervical Cancer uh, Awareness Month uh, here on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We are talking about uh, cervical cancer. We have two amazing women with us today and a wonderful nurse uh, from Vanderbilt, and we will be right back after the break. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, this is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but, but, but what? But, but your butt, your buttocks, your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Cap, you recently lost it. As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or 
or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. January is National Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, and today I am joined by two cervical cancer patients, Patty Kingsley, a participant at the Wellness Community of Southwest Florida in Sarasota, and Marilyn Ucardi, who is a participant at the Wellness Community of Central New Jersey. We are also joined by our dear friend and colleague, Cheryl Redlin, Frazier, an oncology nurse at Vanderbilt Medical Center. Cheryl, both Patty and, and Marilyn have had some pretty intense treatment regimens. Um, uh, just really continue to be uh, amazed at what they, they've shared with us. Um, tell us, Cheryl, is there, is there research being done on finding new ways to treat cervical cancer? Are we getting any better at this? Well, I think that both of them have described um, the sort of the majority of treatment. Um, Marilyn had a hysterectomy, not because they knew she had cancer, um, but finding out afterwards. And I, you know, I praise their facility for sending her slides to the Mass General for analysis. And then Patty um, being treated at the Moffitt Center, both terrific institutions, and really helped them get the best kind of care that they could possibly get. Um, radiation and chemotherapy are sort of the mainstays for the more advanced stages. Um, surgery is used in early stage, so stage 1 up to stage 1D. Um, cervical cancer is a clinically staged disease, and so getting in the care of a G1 oncologist is really um, something that I would highly recommend. So um, beyond the standards, so radiation, chemo, um, and surgery are, are just more exploration than the kind of chemotherapeutic agents that could be used. There is some um, research done in bio- biologic agents um, and, and other vaccines. We mentioned the HPV vaccine in um, treating at the front end, but there is perhaps a suggestion that vaccine or biotherapy might be helpful once there is a cancer established. So that's really where the future is going, I think, in all malignancies. Um, but as far as answering, is there something new and exciting out there? Not quite yet. Not quite yet. 
not quite yet. This so, is why it's so important for the young women to get the Gardasil vaccine. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Marilyn and I are poster childs for get yeah. that vaccine. Yeah. For getting that vaccine. Certainly, yeah. Patty, in your case, I would. I'm not. In Marilyn's case, Marilyn had an endocervical um, cancer, and I'm not sure that having the HPV vaccine would have changed things for her. That the, um, the way that cancer is generated is a little bit different, but it certainly does not minimize the fact that women, young women, need to get this vaccine. And I also think that both of you all, um, in all women who are diagnosed with cervical cancer might have an opportunity to participate in clinical trials so that we can answer the question about is this therapy working or do we not need to find a different kind of therapy? And so I would strongly encourage that. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, Cheryl, just while we're on the subject, we talked about how this is this vaccine is for young women. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we know still that many older women don't realize that, that the risk of developing cervical cancer is still present at their age. Um, what we know is almost 20% of women with cervical cancer are diagnosed when they are over the age of 65. Why do you think this misconception still exists? Why do you think that older women might not be so aware of this? Well, we know that more than half of women over 65 haven't had a pap test in the last three years. Mm-hmm. And, unfortunately, the death rate is higher in older women. And I'm not so sure that it's sort of like out of sight, out of mind. If I didn't, you know, I don't mean to overgeneralize about right. the aging woman, but it might be related to health care priorities. Okay. Women, older women get their breast cancer screened through mammograms and uh-huh. colon cancer screened through colonoscopies. And then we think about the other diseases that um, are prevalent in the aging population, such as heart disease, which is certainly the number one problem of both men and women. So I think sort of the 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 female genital tract is sort of out of sight, out of mind, and I think other priorities um, may take precedence. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done and that providers should be offering the PAP as a screening tool for older women because Medicare does cover a PAP test um, once every three years for all Medicare beneficiaries. Okay. And so is that the, is that the standard? Starting over at the age of 65 and over, you're supposed to get a PAP every three years? Well, it is if, it's, if your PAP tests have been normal in the past. I think the American Cancer Society has um, made some very clear recommendations about um, getting your PAP test. And that um, is, if you're sexually active and under the age of 21, you need to get a PAP test done. Um, if you have consecutive normal PAPs over a period of years, um, then you can go to this every two to three years your um, screening. Okay. They're also, because the liquid-based test is so good, um, it is possible to go to that every two years as well. But the American Cancer Society has great recommendations on that. And tell us again, Cheryl, what women are supposed to be asking about that liquid test. Everybody who gets a pap test should ask their provider as they're getting their test for the liquid-based technology. So you want to make sure that after the sampling is done, so the sampling of cervix is done, that it goes into a liquid, uh, a jar that has liquid in it, rather than on a slide. Okay, liquid-based technology. Right. Okay. Cheryl, so I think... yes. is there anything they can do to change or add to the PAP test so they can find the endocervical cancer? Well, when the when a PAP test is done, or when that pelvic exam is done where the PAP test is taken, they... Uh, the provider will take a scraping from 
what is visible, so the outside of the cervix that is within the vagina. And then take a brush called an endocervical brush and go up inside the very little hole inside the cervix and try to scrape some cells down from inside the cervix. The cervix is a an organ that has like a donut with a little tiny hole. And so you could try to get up as high in that as, in that as you can to get what are called endocervical cells. And, and that, and the pathologist or the cytopathologist's report will tell us whether those cells are present or not. Okay. And all of my pap tests did not show any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think, um, Marilyn, in your case, it's kind of unusual. You, 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 I think you were the driver of getting your hysterectomy. You, yes. It sounded like you said, I am done with this pro- procedure and I would like to get some final care. Right, but, the, but the, what I was done with was the fluid in the uterus. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know it was going to be connected, and it turned out it, they, they say they're not connected. It was just a lucky find. Yes. But um, I, I regularly went for my pap test, and I just don't know in all those times how, how they couldn't have brushed up against it, although the lesion was very small. Right. It was, you know, very small. It was um, a half a millimeter. An endocervical cancer is a rarer tumor, rarer than we're talking about with the cervical cancers incident. So I, I think that you are a very unusual case. It certainly is um, support for women saying, I, I want this, I'd be the driver of your health care, be the one that sort of guides your provider towards the kind of um, procedures and care that you want. And um, I think that's very important for all women that being to an active understand. patient, being an empowered patient. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, we have a couple minutes left until we go to our next break, but I just I wanted to turn back to Marilyn and Patty and talk a little bit more about friends and family. Um, Patty, I understand your husband, Eric, also attends a caregiver support group at the wellness community. Why, why did he decide to also go to a support group, and how do you think that experience has helped him through this? Well, you know, I think sometimes it's harder for the spouse um, when their loved one is ill because you feel so helpless. He certainly did. I was going through very severe pain through a lot of this, and uh, there was nothing he could do. And by going to caregivers, you know, he could express his frustration and not feel alone. And, you know, there were times when between what, you know, he was experiencing and I was experiencing, we were both, you know, so ungrounded. And the support groups really held us together. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was, it, and he still goes. You know, I've been uh, in remission for a year now, yeah. but he and I both still go to the groups because it's a safe place. Right. Well, and I mean, the, the, the cancer experience doesn't stop the day your treatment ends. No. I mean, there's no. still a lot that folks yeah. have to deal with after a cancer diagnosis, right? It's, oh, well, there's uh, always tests and um, follow-ups, and I, I counted the other day. I have 13 different doctors that I have to see. <laughs> and, and, um, and, Marilyn, what are, what are you dealing with right now at this point? Well, I had my um, ostomy done October 24th, mm-hmm. so I'm just about at the tail end of um, recovery from the surgery, the major mm-hmm. surgery. I have learned how to um, take care of it. 
Um, in January, I will go back for a um, pap te- uh, for a, I'm sorry for a uh, CAT scan, and um, it will show if there's been any healing in my sigmoid colon. Okay. And uh, that will give us an indication if this can be reversed. Um, it may not be reversed soon, but if but if the sigmoid colon is healing from the radiation damage, mm-hmm. there's a good chance that this could be reversed. And if there's been no healing, then that's a good chance it can't be. It can't be. Okay, so you've got some uh, you've got some a little bit of waiting and some interesting things. Uh, and that's ahead quite of you well right now. Community. Is that from radiation yeah. damage? We're gonna. We're just gonna uh, take a real quick break, break right now, guys, and we're gonna be right back after the break. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community.
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. On today's show, we're talking about cervical cancer. January is National Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, and we're discussing what you can do if you or a loved one is affected uh, by this disease. We, uh, right before the break, we were talking about um, what lies ahead for our two guests here today, Patty and, and, uh, and Marilyn, and Marilyn was talking about uh, some of the things that she's been dealing with. You just want to pick back up there for a minute, Marilyn, and tell us uh, what, some of the things that you're waiting for now. You have a, a little bit of a waiting game right now. Right. Well, when you first go and meet with your radiation oncologist and she tells you you're going to get your radiation, she goes through the list of side effects, but, you know, and she keeps adding, well, this is so low, this is so low, you know, you probably won't. Well, you know, you kind to put it out of your mind until you start having the problem. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's rare, I believe, to have the severe problems that I had. Yeah. It's rare. Uh, a lot of people go through this and come out and um, they're fine. But the thing about radiation damage is it can happen years later. Yeah. You can have it now. You can have it later. Okay. I can have this... Uh, colostomy reversed, and maybe in 20 years, I'll need it again. Again, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and we have ongoing radiation cystitis, uh, where my the inside of my bladder is just all torn up, and I, I'm constantly in pain, 24-7. Boy, I mean, I, I'm, so, I'm just, I'm, I'm glad we're doing this show, because I think folks don't really understand this disease. They don't really understand the dramatic impact. Or the impact. treatment yeah. side effects from it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, I had pap smears every year. Yeah. And this still happened. Yeah, yeah. And, again, I go back to, you know, get the vaccine. Yeah. No, I think it's good for people to hear that. Um, we're, we're kind of starting to wind down a little bit. And, uh, again, for our listeners, I'd love to hear from all of you about what advice, what recommendations you would give to folks, because obviously you've all had unbelievable experiences uh, in this area. I want to start with you, uh, Cheryl. Tell us, if someone's just diagnosed with cervical cancer, what, what's the first thing she should do? What are some of the things they should think about? Uh, should they think about a second opinion? Should they look at clinical trials? I mean, what, what are some of the things folks should be thinking about? Well, obviously, um, having worked in G1 oncology for many years, I'm very much in favor of second opinions. And I'm very much in favor of women seeing a gynecologic oncologist for their care, predominantly because cervical cancer is a clinically staged disease. And so it really requires somebody who is a specialist in their field. And there are GYN oncologists all over the world. You could go to the um, www.wcn.org website and put in your state and zip code and find um, the closest GYN oncologist to you. What, is that, what does that stand for? That's the women's. Cancer Network. Women's it is Cancer Network. Okay. Website, www.wcn.org. Okay, great. And it's um, uh, sponsored by the Society of Gynecologic Oncologists. Um, but it really, it is very important to, to um, get your care delivered by uh, one of those specialists. And they also work very closely with radiation oncologists um, who direct care. And I think... Um, you know, seeing them, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's where you have to get your care, but at least get a second opinion. Yeah. Um, clearly, Marilyn, you know, you, your kind of cancer is, is very rare, and, um, you know, getting to be seen by a G1 oncologist is probably very important for women who have those kinds of rare cancers. 
Yes, and I did do that. I uh, I uh, went and interviewed at the hospital that did the surgery, a very good local hospital here, but I wound up going to Memorial Sloan Kettering. Excellent with, place. So you need, a, you need a specialist. You need a GYN oncologist. And that's what I have. Okay. And, um, All right, no, I think these are important tips for our listeners to, to, uh, to right. hear about. Okay. I, I'm very fortunate that Sloan Kettering has a satellite um, facility that's very near to my home. They don't do surgeries there, but they do do the treatment there. So I was able to go back and forth for my radiation and chemo not far from my home. When I needed the surgery, I had to go into New York City. But that's a relief to have something closer by, isn't it? Yes, to have yeah. such a wonderful facility yeah. so close. So I felt very fortunate. Patty and Patty and Marilyn, I want to hear from both of you um, uh, as we kind of move towards the end of the show. What advice you would give uh, to someone with cancer, either someone who's just been diagnosed or someone who's been dealing with cancer for many years, based on your own personal experience? What advice would you give folks, either about you know practical ideas, practical tips, or, or emotional you know co- coping uh, tips? I think it's uh, the, you guys are certainly the experts in this disease, and I'm going to start with you, Patty. I think. Uh... First and foremost, you need to be informed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need, I'm amazed at how women do not ask questions of their doctors. You know, well, what does this do? How does this work? You know, what are the side effects? A lot of women just, you know, go along, and I think it's so important to be informed. I think you have to be your own advocate. And just one of the things I did was I started a notebook binder, and I kept all my tests and notes and doctor's visits in that binder, and I can't tell you how many times I've had to take it to another doctor, and and, uh, and then he has the information, because unfortunately, our medical system isn't interwoven that one doctor knows what another it's one is doing. very disjointed, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and and so you have to be the one, the connection yeah. between all the different uh, yeah. specialists, um, and Again, I think that for emotional support, to be with people who experienced and understand what you're going through, they can tell you from the front lines what their experience is and things that maybe might be able to help you. Uh, because when the diagnosis happens, you're, you're stunned, you're shocked, and you just don't know where to go or what to do. And I think the Wellness Center is a great first stop. Excellent, excellent. Marilyn? Well, I couldn't agree more with Patty. I, I am a researcher. I'm, I mean, not by trade, but I just looked everything up. I asked so many questions, I'm surprised doctors haven't thrown me out. (laughs) I also, I keep um, a briefcase, and Mm -hmm. it's got every test I've had and Mm -hmm. a notebook. Whenever I went interviewing before I started the treatment, I had my husband and a friend with me, and my friend would just write and write and write and write and write because you don't remember everything, and your spouse certainly isn't going to remember anything He's going to remember less than you because he doesn't even understand some right. of these terms. Right. Actually, so, I bought a tape recorder. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> wonderful too. And uh, I ever now and then refer back to, you know, what happened. I journal. I write down my days, how they are, and what they do. And I believe if you need some some force, some help. 
that's calming, whether it's the wellness center, which offers so many ways to get your body and your mind calm. It could be faith. It could be just love of family and that. But you need something to try to stay optimistic and to try to stay calm because you're going to be having tests for a very long time. And if you work yourself up before every test, I mean, it's, and then you wait for the results, half your life will be spent in a state of panic. Yeah. Listen, you ladies have been amazing today, um, and I just, I really appreciate all of this amazing advice. I appreciate you sharing your stories and your insights. It's been an incredible discussion. I know our listeners have learned a great deal from all of you. Uh, if folks, if you want to find out more about the wellness community, visit our website, www.thewellnesscommunity.org. There's another great organization called the National Cervical Cancer Coalition. Uh, they can be reached at www.nccc. Online.org, or you can call them at 800 685 5531. What a wonderful discussion! I want to dedicate today's show uh, to everyone who has been affected by cerebral cancer. I want to thank our guests again for sharing their stories and their, their insight and sharing this wonderful um, advice for all of us. And uh, on Frankly Speaking About Cancer, until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org.